This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, and today I have a very special podcast for you. Episode one in a new series, Exploring Payroll Connectivity. Two years ago, I wrote an essay called Payroll Data Plus FinTech, in which I explored this new trend of programmatic consumer-permissioned access to payroll data, which was starting to filter its way into all kinds of interesting places within FinTech. I learned a lot putting the piece together, but I've always wanted to dive in even deeper. This podcast series, which is sponsored by Argyle, one of the payroll data API companies in the space, gives me a perfect opportunity to do just that. Over four episodes, I'll be exploring what payroll data is, how we've started to unlock access to it, and what that access will mean across a huge range of use cases, from lending to filing your taxes. In today's episode, I talk to Shmulek Fishman, founder and CEO of Argyle. We talk about the payroll data ecosystem, how programmatic access to this data is being enabled and how it works and how programmatic access to payroll data is similar to open banking and how it's different. Uh, It was a fascinating conversation. I can't wait for you to listen to it and the rest of the episodes in this series. Here we go. Shmulek Fishman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be talking with you today. Absolutely. Well, I'm thrilled to get this opportunity to dive in deep into this topic. Um, I think as you and I have joked about offline, this is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. I uh, am just utterly fascinated by the payroll API, payroll data space, and just the sort of wild and valuable future that it unlocks. And so really looking forward to getting into the details. Before we go any further, I'd love to do just a quick two minutes on you and Argyle, just so we can set a little bit of context. Obviously, we're going to get into a lot of the details over this episode and coming episodes, but um, why don't we just start with a couple minutes for context? Definitely. And I'm lucky to be talking with somebody else that shares a fascination with payroll data. Most people that I talk to tell me that I've gone insane. So it's nice to be working with or talking with somebody else that wants to go deep on this topic as well. A short background, I suppose, on me I've been lucky to be a part of three startups in very different industries. The first in ad tech, the second in fleet management. And I suppose you can call this uh, payroll connectivity. While those all sound like really different verticals, I've been very interested in networks where you have a lot of supply and a lot of demand that need to transact with each other. In ad tech, you have tons of advertisers, think Coca-Cola, think uh, Pepsi, they need to get on websites. That's where the transaction happens. Fleet management, you have a lot of cars, they need to go somewhere. Payroll, and we're going to get into it this today. There's so many different payroll processors. There's so many different use cases they need to transact. So I find myself in network businesses. Argyle is a network for payroll connectivity. So we allow any business to invite their consumers to connect to their payroll account. And from that connection, all sorts of wonderful things can happen around verifying income, monitoring work, understanding somebody's uh, trends and who they're working for. So it's through this consumer interaction that we're powering that lasts maybe 15 seconds. So much comes out of it. I'm excited to talk to you about it. Awesome. Great. Well, let's get into that. So um, I mentioned before, this is a a subject of fascination to me for a while. And uh, I wrote a piece um, a couple of years ago now, actually, on the sort of payroll connectivity space. And I I framed the whole discussion around this idea of there being a, a waterfall of data, if you will. And so, you know, if you think about sort of programmatically how we get access to the data that we use to make decisions in financial services, one of the things I realized when I started digging into the space is that we've actually been sort of working our way backwards up the waterfall, right? And so, you know, you go back to the the 1970s and the creation of the the credit bureaus, really, that was about codifying a very specific data set that related, obviously, to how consumers were sort of interacting with and managing their credit obligations. And what was interesting to me sort of as a realization when I was writing this piece was that, um, and I'm sure this is just sort of the the accidents of markets and sort of how they evolve somewhat randomly. I mean, I 
you mentioned that you've sort of spent your time building different networks and in different industries, right? They, they sometimes evolve kind of randomly. And in the case of, you know, financial services and the data that we use, the random sort of invention was, okay, well, now we have this credit data and we have programmatic access to it. And so it feels like we've spent the last 50 years extracting as much value out of that data as we possibly can, right? And anyone who spent time in and around lending or making lending decisions knows you know, there's an attribute for literally everything as it relates to a credit file, right? And we, we've squeezed a ton of predictive value out of that data. But at the same time, we haven't always paused and asked the question like, is this data that we're looking at the best source for the insights that we're trying to get or the things that we're trying to predict? And, you know, in some cases, like someone's willingness to repay, you know, a 15-year loan, well, yeah, actually, this is pretty good data. But in a lot of other cases, we were sort of doing our best to stretch and get insights out of the data, even though that data really wasn't maybe the best place to get it, right? Things like income or stability of income. And so, you know, what I've noticed is since the 1970s, we've sort of been working our way up from a very small subset of data, which is like credit obligations, to something a little bit broader, which is maybe open banking and access to like all of the data in someone's bank account. And that obviously includes credit obligations and bill payments, but it also can speak a little bit to income and the money coming in and just sort of your transactional history overall. And what I realized when I was putting this piece together is that there's actually one layer above that, which is the payroll data. Because ultimately, from at least a consumer's financial services perspective, everything sort of comes out of that payroll account, right? All of the money that goes into your bank account, all the money that goes through the direct deposit starts in your payroll account. And all of the money that you set aside before it even gets to your bank account, whether it's for tax withholding, all of those sort of allocation decisions that maybe you only make once a year or once every five years when you change jobs, all of those decisions and all of the data relating to them, that all sits at that payroll level. And it strikes me that like we're just now getting to the point, thanks to companies like Argyle, of sort of unlocking that top of the waterfall and all of the insights that sit up there. And I don't know, when I think about that, I get really excited. So I, I'd like to start very, very simply. I'm a nerd on this stuff as well, but uh, just, you know, kind of uh, at a 101 level, can you help us understand, like, what is payroll data? How does it work? Let's break the word down. Pay, roll. So pay is money that I get and roll. A list of it that comes out, that streams out. Payroll data is very much data that gets put on things. Let's give some examples. Uh, W-2s have payroll data inside of them. That's how it's compiled. A pay stub has payroll data inside of it. Perhaps a job application or an application to get an apartment has payroll data inside of it. Credit bureau data, Equifax has this tremendous subsidiary called the work number that contains payroll data. So payroll data exists uh, very broadly in the marketplace today. The new part, you're so right, is that payroll data is now programmatically accessible, where before you needed to call, send an email, get a fax, very antiquated means of getting payroll data. Now payroll data is provided through an API. And uh, as you were sort of giving a great history lesson on the last 50 years, so much of why we started at the bottom of the waterfall and worked ourselves up has a lot to do with the access or the complications around getting this data set. Credit information from credit cards, that started as a programmatic digital data set. So accessing it was easy, easier. Bank information, one level up your waterfall. Uh, there are 18,000 banks in the United States. So a lot of work has to go into connecting those 18,000 banks payroll data, uh, payroll providers, there's 250,000 registered payroll service providers with the IRS. Wow. So part of the reason why it's taken so long to get all the way up the waterfall is just because it, there's levels of complexity as you go up the waterfall. We're so lucky that we uh, get to learn from platforms like Plaid or from platforms like MX, from Yodely, where they've been able to work their way up. And now this is just the next layer up the waterfall. I'm glad you framed it in that context, right? Because, you know, a lot of times you're like, oh, well, how hard can it be? Well, okay, 250,000 is pretty hard, right? That's a, that's a very um, challenging thing to do. I tell 
our board very frequently that I'm glad I did not know how complicated or fragmented <laughs> the market was when we started. I don't know if I would have done it if I did. This is quite an equation because uh, not only is payroll data very fragmented from the number of providers there are, there's also so many types of payroll data as well. Mm -hmm. Uber has payroll data, Upwork has payroll data, QuickBooks has payroll data, and then the ones that we all know about, ADP is payroll data, Target is payroll data. Uh, with banks, a bank is a bank. So these are the levels of complication embedded. I wanted to talk about that as well because I think that's something that we are a little bit challenged with, honestly, is sort of understanding the similarities and differences between payroll data and sort of what it means to unlock that and sort of other examples like open banking is a great one where it's similar in some senses, but it's also very different, right? There are just fewer players in the ecosystem that you need to work with in order to, to sort of unlock that. So people seem to, uh, and rightly so, talk about how in payroll aggregation space, perhaps there are more nodes on the network than in the banking space. Mm -hmm. I always like to take this out and just think of a generic use case. When I want to verify to somebody else that I make money, the way that I get that information is by showing a pay stub or a W-2. Yeah. All the systems that are involved in generating that, you know, there could be ADP, there could be an employer, uh, there could be an SSO method. There's so many uh, systems that are involved in that. But from a consumer's perspective, there's me, that's party one. Mm -hmm. Party two is the lender, the person that wants to run that verification. Yep. And party three is the system that as the consumer, I need to access in order to get that information. These are the three parties that we're always connecting together. And inside of Argyle, beneath the surface, we are handling all the complex links between ADP's many different systems, the fact that Joe's trucking is connected to ADP, or let's use a real example, Amazon warehouses uses a version of ADP. But no consumer and surely no lender needs to know all those very complex links. We've abstracted all that away so the only thing that a consumer needs to know is how do they make their money? That's what they need to provide. And the only thing that the lender needs to know is what connection that consumer made. And we handle all the other complexities beneath. For those that uh, know a little bit more about banking, you know, there's companies like Galileo or companies uh, like Unit that provide banking as a service, as a wrapper. And you can sometimes think of uh, payroll processors as another wrapper around employers. Got it, got it. And so in both of these systems, it's really just the three different constituencies and then a lot of guts and sauces beneath. Well, and I, I guess kind of poking at that question, the other thing I've always been very curious about in this area is there's a different set of sort of commercial interests at play, right, with payroll data. And, and again, sort of comparing it to open banking, Banks uh, have been very, very reluctant to share their data. And I, I think some have even gone on the record stupidly and said things like, it's not the customer's data, it's our data, which is just like a really, yes. really bad quote to give. But, um, you know, you can, in a way, you can almost understand where they're coming from just in the sense that, like, they're not necessarily trying to commercialize the data, they're not trying to sell the data, but they do view the data as proprietary and something that they want to be able to build products and experiences and stuff off of. So it's a big shift. With payroll data, it's different, right? Because a lot of, kind of to your point, going back to Equifax, and you could play a game if you wanted to, if you're listening to this podcast late at night, there's a drinking game called Workforce Solutions. And every time we say it, you could uh, you know go that route if you wanted to. It's a dangerous game to play. It, it'll come up a lot. It'll come up a lot. So with like Workforce and with um, you know Equifax and the work number, I, I obviously there's sort of a legacy business here of verifying income and doing some of the stuff with this data. So the commercial interests and sort of how you untangle that are are different. And I, I would imagine that when you were talking about abstracting away the complexity, part of it is abstracting away the technical complexity of integrating all these things together, which is a huge, huge lift. The other part is like sort of smoothing out all of the business interests and kind of making this work and making it easy for people to interact with. History lesson. Yeah. Because I find it, I always find these parts fun. Equifax subsidiary of all the work number is basically the standard bearer of income data from a legacy perspective. Yeah. It 
Uh, last year, made over $2 billion in revenue. It connects to the most number of payroll systems I'm on the market prior to Argyle. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's give it some credit for a minute. In a pre-internet world where you had 10,000, 20,000 payroll processors and no way to programmatically connect to all of them, you needed an aggregator that sat in the middle, purchased all this data, stored it in their system. And then when somebody requested a certain data set, they had it ready to access, consolidated their all-in-one database. Yep. That is Equifax as the work number. And in many ways, that is the best way to run this marketplace prior to having an API. And so a lot of what needs to be untangled are very legacy ways of making the link between a lender and a, a consumer's income data. Mm. And that is what Argyle is doing. In a sense, we're saying you no longer need this middleman. You no longer need this system in the middle that's purchasing, storing, and redistributing data because all the data can be requested on demand or at the time of need. And it doesn't need to be stored by anybody, by Argyle or anybody else. It just needs to be transmitted from its location to the requester. Mm -hmm. You are right. This does append some business dynamics. Yeah. I do think that there's probably really broad consensus amongst uh, most people that are listening to this that they don't want other people making money off of their income information. Right. Right. And so the more that people can understand what is going on behind the scenes, the more I think that there will be a change in the industry to uh, not sending everything to Equifax for allow for allowing them to resell it. I, I, I think as more people learn about that, the less people will like it. I think that's a really good observation because you sort of think about these things as like these big sea changes that come in and suddenly a model that's existed for a long time. And to your point, like, was an accomplishment. It was something that provided value. It was. The dynamics around it just shift, right? And I'll, I'll be honest, I, until, what was it, 2017, I want to say, it was the first time I heard about the work number at all. And I was like, there's a database that has all of our like income information? That's crazy. And it's like verified income. I'm like, wow, I didn't even know. And it's it, it just kind of speaks to the fact that like the credit bureau model for doing this is aggregate all the data together, collect it, you know, and, um, you know, normalize it, do a lot of work to make it accessible, and then, you know, essentially um, monetize that work that you were doing in order to to carve out a good business for yourself. And much like we're seeing on the credit bureau side, my sense is that the income verification and other areas that the work number plays in are sort of going through this same conversation right now, which is, okay, well, now that we have the internet, right, and now that we have the ability for this data to not have to be aggregated and stored, there are a lot of reasons for a shift in the way that that works. And obviously, one of them, as you said, is, you know, as a consumer, I kind of like the idea of like me knowing where my data is and giving permission over it. But even other things like data security and like, I don't want all of this data stored in one place and being sort of vulnerable to security incidents or whatever. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious for your overall take on where are we in that sort of uh, sea change and kind of moving to that new world? Because it, it doesn't happen overnight, but it does definitely seem like there's momentum around some of these changes. Well, the thing that I'm seeing is that Equifax, for all the upsides that we talked about, is a very pricey and expensive system. Sure. In mortgage, people are paying upwards of 70 or $80 for a single income verification request. Yeah. Sometimes it gets lower, but when you're talking about dollars, tens of dollars, $20, for a single verification, that boxes a lot of different businesses out of running formal income verification because it's just too pricey. Mm -hmm. Think about a hundred dollar cash advance or renting a car. You just the the economics don't work. And keep in mind that with these CRA systems, uh, Equifax system, the data is only updated four times a year. Right. So if you wanted to uh, make a cash advance, or I know there's a lot of fintech products out there that are extending cash on a daily or weekly basis, you can't use Equifax's database as, a, as the underlying data set for those businesses. And so there's a ton of unlocks when you reduce price, increase uh, data quality, it opens things up. And I think that's the big sea change that we're seeing. I always think that history seems so simple when you talk about it in the past, but yeah. it takes a really long time. And uh, frankly, what I spend the most time with as most time on with clients 
is coaching them through this transition because there's broad understanding when we talk to clients that they want to move to a digital first model, that they want to go programmatic, they want to stop using paper, they want to stop using a CRA. But for the last, to your point, for the last 50 years, people have been doing it this way and right. so much system, so much operational flow has been built around this legacy way. It takes a while to move off it. Fintechs in certain ways have an advantage here because they're starting from the beginning. They have no legacy boss. And so fintechs are the first to adopt these new platforms. Most of the world or most companies, most verifiers are not fintechs, right? Which means that most businesses need to figure out how am I going to shift 10%, 20% of my volume this quarter? And how do I have a multi-year strategy to shift 100% of my volume off of CRA-based approaches and onto this more digital API approach? And that's that's the business of Argo. Right, right, right. No, I mean, it's it, it makes sense, right? I uh, I went to school to be a history teacher, actually. And so I, I re- resonated very strongly with me when you said that like history is one of those things that seems very obvious and linear on the page of the history book. But when you're living it, it doesn't feel that way always, right? And uh it definitely, um, it's a little rockier in the moment. I, I wanted to to circle back to the idea of this data and sort of programmatic access to it being something that really was only kind of possible or conceivable recently, right? I mean, obviously, the answer almost always in all of these questions is the internet came along and sort of enabled this. But I want to dig into what that means from like a payroll perspective specifically, right? Because now consumers have access to their payroll data in a way that apart from the W-2s or the pay stubs that we would get, I remember my first job, I we had a company mailbox and I would go and I'd grab my pay stub out of there. I'd open it up and go, well, my God, they're not paying me very much. And then I'd you know leave. And actually, that's not right. At the time, I didn't have any expenses. I was in college, so it felt like all the money in the world. But uh, in retrospect, maybe not so much. And I can't, it was a while. It was a while until we got to the point where suddenly I had an ADP login, right, at a different company I was working at, and I could log in and I could get sort of programmatic access. And I had more control, candidly, over allocation decisions and those kind of things. So I guess I'm wondering, can you kind of talk us through the history on when that started to shift and just like what the consumer experience is for enabling access to payroll data? So you're right. Uh, the internet is definitely a tailwind, uh, <laughs> something that uh, is enabling for us. The other one that is less talked about, though, is most workers today log in to payroll, not just to look at their pay, but to pick up ships, to get bulletin announcements, to clock in and clock out. The digitization of interacting with your employer has gone online. And I think that's actually the larger tailwind for Argyle because the credentials you use if you're a Starbucks barista or you're a Target stock reshelfer, these credentials are not just your credentials to get your pay subs. They're your credentials that you use every day when you work multiple times a day. And we all know what it's like to be an Uber driver because we see them in the front seat of the car. That person needs to log into that app every day. Those are their credentials. And this is really what they're using have when they're wanting to verify their employment as well. Let's talk about the user flow. If we'll, we'll use a real client, why not? We have a client called Regional Finance and uh, they're a small dollar lender. Mm. When somebody wants to get a loan for Regional Finance, they're sent an email that says, now it's time to verify your employment. And they click that button and a screen pops up that says, how do you make your money? Who is your employer? And they search. They can search for Starbucks. They can search for Uber. They can search for ADP. Mm-hmm. And it says, great, please log me into Uber. Please log me into Starbucks. And they use those same credentials. And we've customized this login screen to infinity. Just to get a, a lick of that, you know, Instacart uses phone numbers to log in. So that's how that screen works. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, Target uh, wants just a, a phone number, a password, and a store code. So that's what that screen looks like. Mm-hmm. So everybody's login is different based on that employer. And we've customized all that so it's exactly the way you normally log in. And once you log in, the consumer experience is over. It lasts maybe 15, 20 seconds. And then everything else is computers, where the lender, in this case, regional finance, pulls 
base pay, Paul's job title, Paul's home address, Paul's hours worked. These are the data elements that they were having to get manually through a PESA before, but now they're just asking for it programmatically. That information streams over to regional finance and they get to make their lending decision. Mm -hmm. The one thing I think we are doing that is net new, everything else is just a digital version of something that was analog. Sure. The one thing that we're doing that's net new is we allow our lenders or our clients to ask this question as often as they want, where if they want to ask this question every day, how much money did you make today? Because we have a persistent tokenized connection into that payroll account, we can always answer that question after every shift, at the end of every day, at the end of every week. Previously, every time you asked this question, it was expensive and laborious because you had to Go to the credit bureau. You had to ask. It was only updated every once a quarter. Right. If you asked the consumer, they had to go into payroll, download their pay stubs again, or take a screenshot. If you asked the employer, it would take a really long time. We've now made the net cost and the net friction of asking the question the second or third time zero. Because once you have access to the account, we're updating in real time as they're completing work. That's where really talking about the future there's so many new use cases that open up by having a persistent connection instead of a one-time sort of hit or point-in-time report. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, and we're going to get into a lot of the specifics around some of these different use cases in future episodes, but I I do want to talk a little bit about that because, again, going back to the waterfall analogy I used at the beginning, it seems like one of the things that we were doing before, right? I always think about it in terms of like, Okay, you're making a lending decision as an example. I I come from sort of a lending background. I used to work at FICO. So I think in terms of like making a lending decision, what data elements are you using and what do those data elements tell you about the customer and what they're going to do? And one of the ones that I think we struggle with a lot from a credit bureau perspective is, well, what is the stability of this person, right, from a lending perspective? And it's a little bit of question about their income. It's a little bit of question about their job. It's a little bit of question about like, just the nature of work and how that's changing, right? Now we don't all have these eight to five jobs that, um, you know, we work at for 45 years with the same company and retire with a gold watch. Like work is different. We work multiple jobs and we pick up shifts and we have side gigs. We do all of these different things. And so the picture about how do you sort of get to a customer's stability in order to make lending decisions, particularly around sort of larger lending decisions that you're making, whether it's a an ongoing sort of cash management, cash flow relationship that you have, where it's not just one interaction, but it's a series of them over time, or a larger, longer-term loan like a mortgage or an auto loan, the stability piece seems really, really important to me. And it's just interesting that in the absence of having this sort of insight into the consumer's life, really the only way we were getting that before was well, they have a history of paying their mortgage, you know, for the last uh, 20 years. And so they seem stable, but it was such a like backwards looking, kind of going to the analogy we were using before, like you were reading pages in a history book and the history was written a long time ago and you're sort of imputing what that means. This is much more like you are reading the book as it is being written in real time. Just to even hammer that point home more, consistency of work, you can Definitely glean it by seeing that somebody's making the same amount over sure. a period of time, which is something we provide. But even more powerful that we hear from our lending clients is that there's consistency in time, meaning somebody that shows up consistently on time for their ships or consistently works the 9 a.m. ship, they are far more likely to repay their loan than somebody that does not. <laughs> and you could not get this type of insight by us doing it because we're not lenders. But you also couldn't get this type of insight by looking at a bank account, by looking at bank transaction lines, by looking at pay subs, W-2s, credit bureaus. This data has never been provided, but lenders have always known that it's the best heuristic. Mm -hmm. So we're really starting to get to what do lenders really need? What are the data sets they really actually need to make the best lending decisions? And it's consistent access, the ability to see sort of structured work or that they, you work consistently mm-hmm. and that the price point works where it doesn't cost you so much to get this data set where you wouldn't be able to make a profitable loan. Right. Absolutely. Well, and the cost is an interesting point too, right? Because the other thing I think about a lot with just the cost of doing these things is anytime you're asking the customer to do something, 
you are asking them to expend energy to get a thing that they don't really want, right? And I, I say this a lot, particularly about lending, but it's like customers don't want loans. They don't want loans. They want the thing that the loan enables, whatever that is, is, but they don't want a loan per se. And so the more you sort of force customers to go out of their way to get the loan or to keep the loan or to to be able to renew the loan, whatever the sort of decision point is, the more you are imposing work on them. And, and the thing that's challenging about lending in particular is, it's a self-selection problem, right? The customers that stick it out aren't really always the ones that you want. The customers you want are the ones that are looking for an wouldn't. easy path, right? And wouldn't wouldn't sort of tolerate all of that friction. And so I, I could see that being a big difference. And one of the, the things you mentioned before that I wanted to just kind of hit on was I had not really been thinking of it in terms of like a Starbucks barista, right? And this is always the challenge whenever I talk about fintech stuff is I always think about it from my life, right? And I'm like, you know, honestly, I don't really probably know my payroll account information, my credentials off the top of my head. I could find them or I could reset my account, but like, it's not immediately clear to me. But sure. to be fair, I don't log into my payroll system very often. I don't need Or get to. loans. Right, or get loans, right. I mean, like, I, I am blessed for a number of reasons to not be in a position where I'm doing those things. But to your point, a very large portion of the market has jobs where as a functional part of the job day to day, logging into the system, logging your hours, clocking in, clocking out, uh, picking up extra shifts. Yes. Those credentials are not just payroll account credentials. Those credentials are essentially the credentials you use to do your job. So when we talk That's about right. the work friction, credentials. yeah, like the friction associated with like logging in and like, you know, granting access to this data. I mean, I, I'd never thought about it in this context, but it might actually have less friction than logging into your bank account. Is that possible? Well, let's break that down. There's some interesting parts here. Uh, one, this is a business, and I've had to teach myself this, where I am so not the consumer, right? Totally. I'm not building something for myself. I'm building something that uh, a pain I see in the market. And when people that start to work at Argyle, there's a whole session on this where we're building something for somebody else, yeah, not for ourselves. Here's some stats. Um, over 60% of the U.S. population makes money piecemeal, which means shift task hourly. They don't have a fixed salary like you and me do. And so that means that they need these credentials to make money. Money is behind these credentials for them. And so, yes, they log into them way more frequently than banks. And it's the reason why the conversion is better than bank conversion. <laughs> it's not because we're doing something fancy. It's just because people know their passwords more than they know bank passwords. Sure, yeah. Um, the other thing around friction and self-selection out that I thought was really important to touch on is that there's there's a lot of conversation with, oh, you know, uh, people already know where to get their pay stubs or people um, already know where their W-2s are. You're right, they do. They're inside of their payroll accounts. And so all these user flows where somebody says, upload pay stubs or can you send me your pay stubs or take a screenshot of your payroll account, these things all happen because somebody knows their username and password into payroll. Mm. And so there's, a, again, there's a real needing to turn and say, think about what is the consumer's experience, not is, what is my experience as the business owner or the lender. Um, and once you start to tease that out, you start to see that this is actually really good for a consumer to have less friction and to give you the data you need, where they're not going to drop out of the funnel, where it's not going to be expensive, where you can get the data all the time. Yeah, that's ironic that like um, the objection to it would be something along the lines of from like a lender's perspective. Oh, well, this would be a huge change to our workflow. We would be really imposing a lot of like new friction on the customer. I'm not sure we want to do this, blah, blah, blah. And then you you sort of pull that argument apart and arrive at a place where it's like, well, actually, we're already asking for the payroll. The payroll data is in that system that they're asking them to log into. But instead of doing one thing, which is log into it, and then we take care of the rest and it's 15 seconds, we're asking them to log into it, find where the payroll stubs are. And they're going to do it anyway. You yeah. were asking to do it anyway. You just didn't know about it. You just didn't. Because so, you were thinking about it in terms of your process, not the experience you're asking customers to go through today. That's really, really interesting. So the other thing I wanted to ask about is coverage and building coverage. And you sort of illustrated that uh, 250,000, right, uh, registered um, payroll systems. Can you just sort of talk us through, I mean, that that's that's a huge number to your point. Like if we hadn't had that founder veil of ignorance, you probably never would have even embarked on that at the beginning. What's been sort of the process of 
untangling the coverage map and like how have you gone about attacking that? Because that that to me is a very interesting, almost like business school problem in the sense that like there are probably some areas where you can get really quick traction, but the payoff is less. And there are others where you probably were hitting your head against a concrete wall for a long time. But like once you broke through, it was huge. So can you kind of give us like a, a summarized version of what that journey's looked like? So coverage turns into this academic conversation, very much to your point of, do you start with the Fortune 500 companies and work down? Do you start with the largest payroll companies? Do you start with uh, certain types of employers? Where do you start? Where do you go to? Mm -hmm. All of this is totally fine to do. Uh, we do it on behalf of clients all the time. Just to get the, it out there, apparently we cover 250 million and counting. Wow payroll accounts that we can access. And I think that everybody that talks about coverage, including Equifax, including all the credit bureaus, is missing the point. Mm. No one actually cares about coverage. What they care about is conversion. What all lenders care about, and by the way, what all consumers care about, is when I search for my employer, can I log into it? That's what really matters. And by the way, in the Equifax example, when I give you a social security number, can you return information on that social? These are conversion metrics. And so what you're really trying to optimize for in all of these systems is if I have 100 users, what percentage of those users are going to be able to connect to their account? The good news is on this is it's way more scientific and a lot less academic because Everything that uh, is searched for inside of Argyle Link, we take note of. And so when somebody searches for something that we can't find and somebody's searching for that a lot, let's t talk what uh, people were searching for a company called NetChecks. Oh. It's a payroll processor. Aha, we need to build connectivity to NetChecks, mm. right? This is really easy to do because the customers, the consumers are guiding where we're supposed to build connectivity, not some sort of list on Fortune 1000 or something you can buy off the internet. And I, I totally understand the need for the industry to want to talk about coverage as is what in the aggregate can you access? And we can throw out big numbers. Everybody else is going to throw out big numbers, but it's not going to really make an effect on the day-to-day -day operations of the business. What's going to make an effect on the business, make you more profitable, reduce costs, have better consumer experiences is if your conversion funnel is optimized. And we can do this for you because we have the power of all of our clients and all of our clients' consumers typing in search queries all day into our system. We know what people are searching for and what we're able to return result for versus not. This is the real way I think the industry needs to move. And it's uh, to our, I think our, our ongoing conversation here about it's not about us. We would type in, you know, if our friends are going to type in Google, sure. right? No one at Google needs a loan. Um, right, our friends are going to type in Johnson and Johnson or BlackRock. Again, they don't need a loan. What our friends are going to type in, right, is Target and Chipotle. Right, they're not going to Joe's Trucking. They're not going to type in these things. These are the people that need loans. These are the people that lenders are trying to access. It also goes back to what you were saying about the the network effects, right? Just in that you know, as you're building out these network effects, like the more clients you have the more users they have that are accessing the system, the more data you have that informs your roadmap for how you build out that connectivity. So I would hazard a guess, and this is purely a guess on my part, but the guess would be that over time, you probably see a strengthening of the conversion rate within the segments that you serve, right? And so as you're like carving out new segments or you're going after a new part of the market, then you're starting that wheel again and you're starting to turn the conversion cranks. But like, Ed, the longer you've been working in a particular vertical or a particular market or use case, the better your conversion time gets because you're optimizing over time. Okay. Yes. And it's you're so right about verticals. Uh, just to give some stats on our system, in the gig space, any gig worker, we connect gig workers at over 80% conversion. So we're really good at that. System-wide, net one out of two users that enter our system convert, which is like 50% net conversion is astounding. Mm -hmm. And there's there's other places where, yes, is it less than that? Of course, for your example, right? Uh, we're not as good at converting tech workers in California. That's not where we're as good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it does play out very much that way. The other thing I wanted to ask about is, and it kind of circles back to what we were talking about in terms of like 
that ongoing connectivity to the payroll account and just like kind of putting power back in the hands of lenders or back in the hands of financial institutions just in terms of like, okay, if you had a blank slate and you could do this any way you wanted to, what is the way you would do it? How would you design these products? Like, what would you do if you could? And like, let's talk about what this new capability unlocks for them. And one of the ones, in addition to the the ongoing programmatic access that I was also curious about, is this distinction between read and write access. And I, I was curious, you see this come up a little bit in both the payroll space, open banking space more broadly. Can you sort of characterize like what that is and how you think about it in the context of payroll data? Sure. So read and write is a very technical engineering uh, it is. terminology. It is. And just to get everybody up to speed, reading is the idea that there's information on a page and you can pull it and copy it over to your own document. Writing is when you can actually change the information on that page or add information into a revel. And what the industry has gotten very excited about over the last couple of years is being able to write information um, concerning where your money goes. It's usually considered direct deposit switching, where you can say, my money was going to Wells Fargo, now I want it to go to Lending Club. It's very exciting from a friction point of view. I will admit, if before you had to log in yourself, you had to type in these account and routing numbers, You know, maybe you had to fill out a form. And so there is definitely a consolidation of friction. The other thing I'd say, though, is that changing routing and account numbers or writing to uh, where your money goes is an on-the-margin gain, both for banks and for consumers. I'm sure that if you've been doing enough podcasts on banking and there's going to be enough, there's enough conversation on banking anyway, but yeah, yeah, people don't have a tremendously hard time moving their money around these days. If it ends up in one bank, they can transfer to another. ACH is really readily used. I think a lot of reason why there's a flight to quality in banking is because it's so easy to move money around. There's not a ton that's needed in getting money to go to a different place. And so I, I caution how big that market is just because of all the other options for how to move money around. By the way, we do provide that feature. There's so many other things that you can do with payroll both in terms of writing, if you think you have, uh, maybe you work for several locations and you have a home address, you need to change your home address in all places. You could think like you just change it once and it changes a bunch of places. Maybe yeah, that'd be kind of contributions. Yeah. Yeah, that would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Maybe we have 401k contributions, healthcare contributions. You want to be able to manage those or change plans. You could think of another service that layers on top. But I, as we're pulling out, reading and writing functionality is very technical I think sort of most uh, people that are listening, what they really care about is use cases or what can I power, regardless of the technical component of it, reading and writing data, what can I power using this access? And we've been talking about lending, we've been talking about mortgage, which are really legacy spaces. But I think the power of providing daily pay or on-demand pay to everybody that is currently being paid on the 15th and last of the month is so powerful. It's such an awesome opportunity. And for the first time, you can do that with our system because we're giving you shipped level granularity into somebody's pay. I think this is a massive, massive market unlocked by payroll connectivity. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about the reading right thing. The engineers <laughs> are going to figure that part out. I love it. That's, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. I'm not an engineer by training. And so when I use these terms, it's me uh, definitely uh, getting well out over my skis. But no, that um, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I, I think the other thing that it sort of brings up, for me at least, is this, again, sort of circling back to the notion of this shift in the market and sort of putting more control in the hands of consumers, whether it's getting paid after every shift or, um, you know, getting sort of easier access to loans without having to go hunt through a shoebox for old uh, pay stubs. Yeah. This fits into a broader narrative or shift in the market, which is also being driven somewhat by regulation, right? So we have we have the CFPB. They're working on um, sort of finalizing rules around Dodd-Frank 1033, which is the sort of provision of Dodd-Frank that um, sort of makes consumer financial data portable with their uh, permission. It would seem to me, again, being a layperson and we're looking at this from the outside, that... Um, 
that would, in a broad sort of philosophical sense, cover payroll data as, as sort of a category of financial data. I also get the sense that it's not probably like the number one priority or thing that uh, the CFPB is focused on, recognizing that they have a lot of ground to make up here. And we've probably been a little behind the curve in the US in terms of uh, codifying some of this stuff. But what's the sort of payroll point of view on um, 1033 and just sort of like more regulatory support for like open finance, open banking? We're big advocates for 1033. We've written a letter in support to the CFPB that Equifax has taken note of as well. So we're definitely in the conversation. And at a high level, what they're talking about makes all the sense in the world. Financial data is an umbrella of many different data sets. Payroll data should be one of them. Tax data, uh, bank data is already considered it. But any, yeah, I would consider payroll data to be financial data. And I think having a level playing field amongst all the data sets that are financial information for a consumer is good for business, is good for innovation. The government moves slowly, and so I think that we need to set standards and to uh, move forward and lead by example. I'm really proud of the work that we've been doing in this regard. You know, we show each consumer what they're sharing and who they're sharing it with. We make sure that all of our clients that we work with provide a way for for consumers to request that their data be deleted. And um, as we move forward, I think we're going to provide other functionality for consumers so they can they can fully be in control of their information. And this is what eventually will work its way into 1033. In the interim, Plaid is a good um, history book to open up because they existed for so many years, for nearly 10 years, without good rules of the road. And they had to figure that out with their bank counterparts, with their supply side. And I think we're doing the same with payroll processors. And so 1033 and direct conversations with payroll processors, I think is the magic trick for us. Got it, got it. Yeah, it's kind of like all the drivers on the road sort of getting together and figuring out a system for how we're all going to like navigate and get to the places we need to get to without running into each other. And eventually someone will come on and paint lines on the road and it'll all work out. But yeah, that, uh, that makes a ton of sense to me. So if we play that forward, the last kind of question I have for you is, I want to get your perspective on where all of this is going. And I I think sometimes, again, as you were saying, like, we're living in history, we're living all the bumps right now in real time. But if you close your eyes and sort of imagine turning forward a few pages in the history book 10, 15 years from now, yeah. you know, if things have sort of worked out the way that you think they have. I just I'm curious, can you sort of paint a picture of like where you think we'll be and what that will mean in terms of like better, more ubiquitous access to payroll data and that being just a common thing that's sort of woven into our lives and kind of how we interact with uh, with financial services providers? Argo is on a long-term mission to delete paper. And while that might sound banal or not worth it, the world runs on paper for income decisioning. Uh, both on the consumer side, you have to get all the paper and you have to send it to somebody else. And on the lender side, you're storing a lot of paper and a lot of PDFs. It's still the backbone for how decisions are made. I think we would have a huge success if in five years and 10 years, you no longer are using paper, you're using payroll data sets, right? And you don't even think about PDFs or can I get the backup pay stuff? If we could delete that from our lexicon, I would totally be in favor of it. Less, a little less wonky. If we were traveling to a place of zero paper, I think we're also traveling to a place of universal access to your income data, where regardless of what type of work I have, whether I have salary work, I drive for Uber, you know, I make great burritos at Chipotle, I have access to my information. I can control who else can see it and for what reason. And this is something that is going to take many, many years to play out. But it's something we really want to lead with where everybody has a passport or everybody has a a way to hold on to their information and share it with the people that they want. That's amazing. Well, the listeners of the podcast would not be able to see me crying tears of actual joy when you said, uh, you know, eliminate all paper from existence like that. That makes me personally so happy. So I, I assume that others will share my joy in that vision as well. I'm glad. That's awesome. Um, So that, uh, I think, concludes everything I wanted to touch on this episode. However, before I let you go, 
as we mentioned, this is the first in a series of episodes that we're going to do diving even deeper into this topic of payroll connectivity. And we have three episodes coming up that I wanted to just tease very briefly just for the audience. So we have talked about use cases a lot. What we're planning to do for the subsequent three episodes is to dive into those use cases in a lot more detail. So the plan is for the next couple episodes to cover lending as a category and all of the sort of income verification and stability of the borrower and all the things we were talking about. Even more specifically, mortgage, which is its own beast. And I, I've dove into the mortgage space enough to realize that like, you think you know about lending, you think it's you know about animal. how these things work. It is completely its own animal. And it's an animal that will like bite your face if you're not careful. So like, you have to be careful when you're dealing with mortgage. So really looking forward to getting into that. And then the third one, the most sort of intriguing one perhaps to me is emerging use cases and kind of a, a catch-all for all of those things and all the things where we might be getting to next. So I don't know if you want to sort of talk a little bit about that and some of these future episodes. I'm really excited. Please make it for the next couple of weeks uh, and make it to the end of emerging. Um, it's the place where I find the most joy because you get to hear things like people making a dating app that was reliant on verified employment and verified income or people working on divorce apps or bankruptcy apps that require verified income, you can start to think like, wow, these can be huge businesses. It might take many years to play out, but the wheels start to turn. So uh, there's definitely that there. And uh, just to hit on the other ones, we were talking a lot about mortgage throughout uh, this session uh, or lending a lot throughout the session, but mortgage is its own beast. And for the last two years, Argyle has been working really diligently to provide a mortgage ready product where we are formatting our data set to the mortgage use case, which is its own beast. And there's a really interesting moment right now where uh, a large volume of top tier mortgage processors are starting to make that pivot off of manual verification or off of CRA-based verification and onto these new models. Um, and it's a re you can tell that this is like the exciting moment for mortgage. So it, it, um, I'm now all giddy about it too. Awesome, awesome. Well, um, that was a great uh, uh, setup for our future episodes. This was also a great foundation to lay for this whole conversation. Um, I Learned a ton, uh, and I, I thought I already knew a couple things about the payroll space, but I learned a ton. Hopefully, everyone listening did as well. We'll be back at it uh, with a subsequent episode next week. But until then, uh, Shmulek, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. If you want to hear even more insights into the past, present, and future of FinTech, be sure to check out The FinTech Factor the podcast series where I try to figure out how fintech companies can build sustainable differentiation in this golden age of fintech infrastructure. <laughs>